Kisov for the Devils plays it cross ice into the far corner. Matteau swoops in to intercept. Matteau behind the net. Swings it in front. He scores! Matteau! 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 Stefan Matteau! And the Rangers have one more hill to climb, baby! But it's Moot Vancouver! The Rangers are headed to the final! Hey now, it is Wednesday, going into Thursday, May 27th into May 28th. This is Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters. It is Season 10, Episode 9. Great show for you today. Uh, First of all, first guest in a second, Hall of Famer, Jack McCollum is going to join us to talk about the Dream Team. He has... He wrote a book that was featured in the book club and also won the book club book of the year back when we used to do that called Dream Team. And now he has a podcast using the tapes that he recorded when he was researching for that book. He's going to come on and talk to us about that. Also going to talk a little bit about The Last Dance documentary, which he was not interviewed for. He was scheduled to be interviewed for it a few times. One time he was in New York about an hour away from the interview and they canceled him to do Justin Timberlake, um, which is ridiculous. Uh, But we'll talk to him about that and about his podcast. We'll do that first. He's a Hall of Famer. We defer to the Hall of Famer. We'll do the book club and then something I know everyone's excited for, the return of Richard Deitch. Richard Deitch was on episode three of this podcast been on many times since we went viral in 2013 together he named the sportscasters one of the best sportscasts one of the best sports podcasts of 2014 for sports illustrated he recognized it again with the athletic in 2018 and he'll join us today 2020 uh, to talk about a bunch of different sports media um, kind of things that are going on the monday night football booth we talk about that we talk about Barstool Sports and the uh, Daddy Podcast, and we talk about uh, Mike and the Mad Dog, uh, Mike Francesa, and his battle with uh, Back After This, the Funhouse uh, thing. So we'll get to Deitch in a second. And then, of course, we'll have one last thing. We'll do the book club. Real quick before we get to the interviews today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the NHL uh, announced a return-to-play plan. Uh, the regular season is over, uh, and that means uh, that seven teams uh, have had their season end, including the Sabres. I thought it was a little ridiculous to plan a return with 24 of your teams. I would have thought, find a way to get the other seven to play. I, I was told that there wasn't much enthusiasm from those seven teams to play. I don't know if that's true. Uh Mike Harrington was the one who said that players in Europe was going to be an issue getting them back. They didn't want to play. Whatever. The league has come up with a plan to have 24 teams play. Now, the playoffs 
is still going to be 16 teams. Uh, eight of the teams are already in the playoffs. And they're going to play a round robin to determine the seeding. All right, so back up. They're going to have 24 te- Seven teams are out. 24 are in. There's going to be two hub cities. Uh, they haven't been selected, but they're going to pick from the following. Chicago, Columbus, Dallas, Edmonton, Vegas, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Toronto, or Vancouver. I know the league would like to have Las Vegas and Toronto as the other one. The problem is, is Canada has like a 14-day quarantine situation if you enter from another country. So if they stick to that, chances are it won't be Toronto. Uh, But one of the cities will house the West, one the East. You would think Vegas would be the West and Toronto would be the East. Now, if Toronto's a no-go, then that's maybe where you see Pittsburgh um, jump in and grab that spot. Maybe Columbus. Who knows? But those are the team, the cities they're considering. Teams will be limited to 50 personnel in the hub city. Uh, so after players and coaches, that's not much. Uh, so here's what they're going to do as far as the, the teams. So there's going to be a round robin for the top four teams. And they'll play for seeding in the first round. So in the East, that's uh, Boston, Tampa Bay, Washington, and Philadelphia. So those four teams will play a round robin. And then there would also be a best of five qualifying round um, for five versus 12, six versus 11, seven versus 10, eight versus nine. All right, so let's go through the East first. This is what it would be. Boston, Tampa, Washington, Philadelphia. They all play each other to determine who's the one, who's the two, who's the three, who's the four. They use regular season rules for that. So it'll be a five-minute three-on-three followed by a shootout. And its winning percentage is how they would determine who would be the first seed and who would be the second seed. The first seed, let's just say it plays out as seeded now. The first seed, Boston, would play Pittsburgh versus Montreal's winner. Uh, the second seed, Tampa, would play Carolina versus the Rangers winner. Washington, the third, would play the Islanders versus Florida. And uh, four, Tampa Bay versus Columbus would play Philadelphia. Now, that's if the league gets their way and does it in a bracket format uh, where the players want to reseed. So that's still up for debate who would play who. Uh, maybe it would be one versus the eight, nine. Uh, maybe it would be two versus the seven, ten, three, like the NCAA tournament, or maybe they recede it. Uh, that's yet to be decided. But the first four teams, Boston, Tampa, Washington, Philadelphia, round robin for seeding, and then some pretty cool best of five series. Pittsburgh versus Montreal would be really fun to watch. Carolina versus the Rangers. Carolina was one of two teams who voted against this, them in Tampa Bay. And they both said it was for competitive reasons. They felt like... They weren't getting the proper odds they deserved. Uh, Interesting to see Carolina. And it's interesting with the 11 and 12 teams in the East, right? 11 with the King and 12 with Carey Price. Could those older goalies who still might have a round stealing performance in them send Pittsburgh and Carolina out? Islanders in Florida and then Toronto and Columbus. 
Uh, Toronto has been planning for months, assuming it would be Tampa. All of a sudden, now they got to survive Columbus. And then if it is a bracket style, maybe that means Boston is there waiting for them again, which you know they would not like. Uh, in the West, it would be St. Louis, Colorado, Vegas, and Dallas playing the uh, round-robin round for seeding. And then the best of five would be Edmonton versus Chicago, which would be pretty awesome. A lot of stars in that. Uh, Nashville versus Arizona. Vancouver versus Minnesota, which could be really fun. And Calgary versus Winnipeg, which I'm sure uh, TSN would love to see happen. Um, Like I said, the qualifying round is best of five. And then there's the round robin. And then from there, they would do best one round of best of five and then two rounds of best of seven uh, from there uh, to decide the cup champion. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the lottery was also announced, and it could be kind of complicated, although it's not. So there's two phases for the lottery. Picks one, two, and three are, again, that's what we're trying to win in this lottery. Detroit has the best odds, Ottawa the second best. So this is where the seven non-playoff teams, um, where they get talked about. San Jose is out of this because Ottawa has their pick. So Ottawa has two of the best odds, uh, two of the best three odds in this. Now, after seven, who's the Sabres, the first team out, and I'll talk about them in a second. They call it Team A, Team B, Team C, all the way down to H. The last eight teams are the teams that lose the um, those rounds we were just talking about. If one of those teams wins either Part 1, Part 2, or Part 3 of the lottery, then they need to have a second phase uh, to determine who those teams end up being. So it's really complicated. It, We'll talk more about it as it it gets closer. Interesting thing for the Sabres. So they missed the the playoffs, if that's what you want to call them, by two points uh, behind Montreal. So they were the 13th team in the East, Montreal being the 12th. They had two games in hand on Montreal that they will never get to play. And also, the night the league was canceled, the Sabres were in Montreal waiting to play the Canadians. If there was one more day... uh, available to be played and the Sabres won that game, they'd be in the playoffs and Montreal would be out. The Sabres become the fifth team in NHL history to miss the playoffs nine straight years. Congratulations to them. And not only do they miss the playoffs, they only have a 6.5% chance to get the number one pick. Way to middle it, boys. Good job. So that's the situation with the NHL. I still think it's about 50-50 that this actually happens. And if it does, it won't happen in until near the end of July, which means it would push well into the fall, you know, September-ish, this would end, which means we might not see the 2020-2021 season until January. Uh, Commissioner Bettman even said the Winter Classic could be the opening game, Uh, and that would be really nuts for the Sabres. That'd be like nine months in between Sabres games. So, the NHL... Stepping forward to say this is our plan. Uh, The NBA, there's been reports that their plan is to possibly use Disney, Wide World of Sports, as the location for their tournament. 
Major League Baseball is still fighting over money. Uh, there might not be a season at all because they can't figure out the compensation. And of course, the NFL says that they're ready to go in the fall. All right, wanted to mention that real quick. I thought that was interesting. Let's take a break. We're going to be right back with Jack McCollum. Our first guest today is one of the best sports writers of all time. Uh, He's a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame since 2005. Uh, He worked at Sports Illustrated from 1981 until really now, where he's still part-time writing for them. Uh, He's one of the great, great sports writers. He's been on our podcast before. His book, Dream Team, is one of my favorite sports books of all time. Warm sportscasters, welcome to Jack McCollum. Hey, Jack, how are you doing today? I'm all right, Stephen. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Had a nice Memorial Day weekend. You know, I think the uh, sun has come out, as they say, maybe. Hopefully. Um, That's what we all we can all we can hope for, but uh, I hope uh, better times are uh, better times are coming. Kind of locked down in Pennsylvania was a lockdown state, but uh, things are starting to uh, change a little bit, so we'll see. Yeah, New York... The same, very locked down, um, but now starting to to lessen. I think we're starting phase two today in my county. I know one thing New York did, maybe a lot of states, I'm not sure, but they separated it by counties in terms of reopening because it was so much worse in, near the New York City than, say, here, and that's 500 miles apart, so it's hard to keep them to the same standards, you know what I mean? Well, that's what they did in Pennsylvania. Yeah. We happened to be in a in a bad county because there were a lot of deaths because there were a lot of nursing homes and uh, old old folks homes, but they decided to, you know, they could not micro break it down by that. So, but I think we're going to phase uh, what they call yellow here uh, next week uh, from, from red. So things will be a little different. Did you think at all about what it would have been like for you if you were on your beat full time that you, did for so long for Sports Illustrated what this time might have been like for you? Did that cross your mind at all? Well, what crossed my mind the most if I were still back, you know, like 25, well, even 15 years ago when I was still full-time would be, what is it going forward? That would have been my thought because most people that I know who are still, you know, the people I keep in touch with, at Sports Illustrated and other places are all thinking, what is the future of sports? I mean, would I want to, let's say the NFL, you know, plays, and I was an NFL writer, would I want to get on a plane and, you know, go to Cincinnati or Cleveland to cover a guy? You know, I don't know. So I would have been most concerned with that, and I don't think we have those, uh, I don't think we have those questions answered. And quite frankly, uh, you know, one of the advantages of being old (laughs) Is that I don't, uh, sure. I won't be uh, worrying about that uh, anymore. But I know the younger people in our profession really are thinking about the future a lot. Well, one thing that we all did to kind of pass the time a little bit is watch the Last Dance, right? I think um, you know ba- basketball fans, just sports fans in general. The thing got amazing ratings for ESPN. I'm sure they're thrilled about how it performed. I enjoyed it. 
and the time I spent watching it. But I guess I'm not fawning over it as much as some people. First of all, and it's not because you're here, because I know you've seen the tweets. My One of my main criticisms is I don't understand how one of the most important basketball writers of the time and the guy who literally wrote the book on the Dream Team isn't included in that. And I think you said in a blog that they canceled you to interview Justin Timberlake, whose like contribution to that was six seconds. Um, <laughs> so that's a criticism that you don't have to respond to because I know it's about you and that could be uncomfortable. Um, you can respond well, if you want. Yeah, I, I put it, you know, yeah. there were a lot of people they didn't. I was I was set up to be interviewed actually more than that. I mean, I was supposed there was I went back and there were 25 inter- email exchanges uh, between myself and the producer, who's actually a good friend of mine, Mike Tolan. But uh, I, I think as they got near the, you know, there was one time I was canceled and I was in New York and uh, ready to go. And they said it was because JT came in and I, you know, I thought it was James Taylor, the great uh, right. you know, singer. That we would have understood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, other people, you know, had, a, I, I only mentioned it in my first blog in kind of a, a laughing way, but uh, it was, uh, you know, Craig Hodges, I know felt that he maybe should have been interviewed. Uh, Peter Vesey said the same thing. Robin Roberts, who was a, a friend of Michael's and a very important person, uh, you know, kind of a lot of, she did a lot of reporting and knew Michael very well. She wasn't in it. So, you know, I, you know, that's just the way it goes. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'll, uh, I'll go forward and I'm sure not many people didn't like it because <laughs> sure. Jeff McCallum wasn't in it. That's fair, but you know, I, I have a specific interest in sports media. It was a glaring omission to me. Another thing is, and I struggle with this, wasn't the the real story good enough? Like, tell me what you think about a few of these things. Why did they need to, in the first episode, for example, create this false narrative about Michael Jordan coming back from the injury, only being able to play 14 minutes and people are going to be fired if he plays more than 14 minutes. And then you look at the game log, which is very easy to find on basketball reference. And he played over 35 minutes that night. Why? What was the need for that? Why do you think they had to do things like that? Like, and it happened over and over again in the Dennis Rodman um, example episode, they sort of told the story to make it seem like Michael Jordan flew to Vegas to get, Rodman back to practice and then you find out the real story is well no he went across the street to Rodman's apartment in the United Center and it just seemed like yeah. on and on there was these example of like what 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 was it this the regular story wasn't good enough why did they have to do this do you think well I think you always balance uh you know there's there's the journalistic uh straight ahead way to do it which you know you were probably looking at and i would probably look at and knowing that it's on the record and then there's the more dramatic uh you know the key to narrative if you talk to anybody in filmmaking is that it's conflict that there's always has to be (laughs) there's always has to be conflict and i think the directors were faced with uh let's call it a dilemma or we can call it a hard reality of we knew what was going to happen. <laughs> sure. You know, we, right. we knew that Michael got 
the third three-peat. So everything that was set up essentially in the, in the years uh, 97, I'm sorry, uh, 96, 97, 98, you know, anytime they tried to set up a, uh, you know, kind of achieve what's going to happen here, we all kind of knew. So I think anytime the director had a chance to establish some kind of, uh, you know, drama or intrigue to it, he probably uh, took that opportunity. And, you know, the Rodman thing was interesting to me because I actually then went and, you know, I said, well, wait, you know, Jordan didn't go to Vegas. Right. (laughs) There's no way Phil, there's no way Phil would have let another guy go to Vegas. Sure. (laughs) You know, uh, so, I mean, you know, those things happen over 10 hours. It didn't necessarily kill it for me. I just kind of understood that once in a while they were inventing some, uh, let's say, intrigue or conflict. But you So, know. I think Ken Burns is the first person to call it out. Just kind of the idea that, like, this is a Jordan production in a way, and that might not be the best way uh, to do a documentary. And, of course... In a way, Jordan sort of had final cut. Um, we don't know how deep that went, per se, I don't think. I've been reading a lot of Richard Deitch's reporting on it, who had some really good um, back and forth with, uh, was his name Jason Hare? Is that his name? Jason Hare, yeah. Yeah. Um, Even though it's H-E-H-I-R. But, uh... Right. Uh, that's why I was hoping I had it right. Um, but interestingly, and this kind of will lead us into the podcast and away from the documentary a little bit. Interestingly, the one spot it seems like Jordan held back a little bit is that he wants, it seems like, to put out, again, I'll use the word narrative, I don't know that that's the right word, the narrative that he wasn't the reason Isaiah Thomas wasn't on the Dream Team. That I'm listening to your podcast yesterday, which is even before I read an article about it today, seems like people are picking up what I did while I was listening at the grill yesterday cooking a burger. Michael Jordan's on tape on your podcast saying, yeah, I told him I didn't want to play if Isaiah Thomas uh, was on the team. That had to perk your ears when you seen that on the dock, I'm sure, knowing what you had. Well, it, it did, except that Michael, over the years, as far as I know, the only place that he has ever said what he said to me, which was I didn't want to play if Isaiah was on the team, was to me. <laughs> he has said many times over the years that including back then and many other times that, you know, he's either directly denied it or gone around. I don't want to talk about it or given the sort of half truthful thing, which is I didn't pick the team, which is sort of literally true. Right. And I understand a little bit where Jordan's coming from because all of the heat, um, I, he, I am on. Ta- he, ha- I have him on tape saying he didn't want to play if Isaiah was on the team. However, you can take this in a lot of directions. Chuck Daly, the coach who was Isaiah's coach, didn't push for Isaiah. Sure. Um, Magic Johnson, who claims that he wanted Isaiah on the team, did not push for Isaiah. Isaiah had, as far as I know, zero other support. So I think Jordan feels kind of put upon that why am I taking all the heat for this? And to me, I always jokingly refer to it as, you know, if you look at the causes for World War I, 
There are 37 of them. But if you want me to give you one, you know, it was the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. Right. So (laughs) that, to me, is comparable to what it is. If you want me to give you one, I think it's because Michael said he wouldn't play if Isaiah was on the team. But there's 37 other reasons also. So So I wasn't surprised when I heard that on the documentary because that's always been Michael's position. And frankly, I was surprised. He said it so directly to me. The uh, the thirty seven reason thing. That's I like what you did there. But you know, also like he's Michael Jordan, and they had to have him on the team for it to be what it was. So forget the other thirty six because that one's the deal breaker, right? I mean, without Michael, you don't have it. So there is that. You know, and we can back up a little bit because I should mention, and I did in the introduction again, but. You're you're in the club now, the club of seven hundred thousand plus, and I welcome you, uh, the podcast club. It's called the Dream Team Tapes, and there's been three episodes out so far, and the first one was kind of uh, uh was really about um, what'd you say, Michael Magic and uh, how'd you put Michael it? Magic Larry? Right, that's how you put it. Thank you. Uh, that was kind of about that and tracking those guys down, and then uh, then the next episode, um was sort of what, like the team creation a little bit, and then uh, the next well, time... Well, kind of a little bit of the history of the, the Olympics, Olympics and how we had sure. always had college right. in it. And, yeah, because, and the third one sort of about how the team was selected and announced in 1991, the kind of formation of the, uh, of the team. Yeah, and I was interesting listening to that one too because I remembered from the book an interesting thing when they were putting it together how... They kind of started like in the very first talk, like maybe we'll do six and six with college and pro. And then they're like, ah, maybe we'll do nine and three. You know, it like kept going down and down until they settled on one. And you, you kind of talked in, in that episode about the decision be, between Leitner and O'Neill. But let's let's back up a little bit. So you're in this space. You're doing the podcast. Um, I was interested when I first heard it. I was I was interested were the you know like in my head I'm like are the did he do new interviews for this or is he using the tapes from the interviews for the book which I found out it was that the interviews from from the book when did you realize you had all this stuff I mean maybe you always knew you had it but when did you get the idea like hey let me you let me repurpose this let me use this for a podcast how did it kind of come about that way well like most things it's a more complicated story but the short story is about two years ago uh, probably even longer it might be four years ago that somebody in uh, not somebody I know who they are but it's producers in Hollywood optioned my book that means they buy the rights to your book to make and they sure. want to make a documentary yeah and they did make a documentary now there has already been a the- dream team documentary but this was going to be a new direction was that the one on NBA and, you know, TV is that what we're talking about? The one that aired on NBA? The TV? one on NBA TV, yeah, okay. which was you know really good documentary that yeah. came out fantastic the same year my book came out, 2012. Right. Anyway, these guys were going to do something different. In fact, made the movie like many things in Hollywood. <laughs> it continues to be tossed and turned mm. and caught in a in a storm of turnaround and Olympic rights, and then Michael's thing came out, and the people that were going to do it wondered geez, can we still do it? So all that was going on in turmoil. And I, you know, they, so they had were the first one when we started, gather, you know, they wanted to gather information that I realized I had all these 
tapes that I, you know, miracle of miracles, I had saved them. So I, you know, the guys used them for the, uh, for the documentary and they were like, they couldn't have been happier. I had these tapes. I mean, they felt it gave the, sure. you know, the whole thing of verisimilitude. It sounded real, you know, and, and it was. And so then when the, when the documentary looked like, I don't know whether it's ever going to come out. Um, I was starting to talk to my, uh, agent, Scott Waxman, who was starting a podcast business diversion podcast and just decided, Hey, this would be the ideal first ones, uh, mainly 90% because I had these tapes. Nobody wants to hear me go back through the book again. Nobody wants to hear me reading the book. I mean, I didn't even look at the book when I wrote these eight scripts. All I did was see what audio I had and try to build the thing around the audio. Um, That's what I thought was easily the most compelling. And then the pandemic came along. And in much the same way, though smaller fashion uh, than ESP, you know, than the ESPN documentary, you know, you need programming. Right. <laughs> and suddenly iHeartRadio and Braun Shavers and a bunch of other uh, commercial properties bought in. So all of a sudden it became kind of, you know, a thing. <laughs> On the fast track, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, you know, is always... Uh, fun and exciting, but always brings with it a new set of perils. I mean, for example, the second episode, I'm mortified. I called it the 1936 Munich Olympics Munich, and it was in Berlin. That. So you have, you know, yeah. 500 people telling you you're an idiot, you know, so. <laughs> Welcome to the, I've, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been there. Yeah. I've been there. I'm sure you have. Too, yeah. But, I'm not, but in the podcast world, I've been there. The, yeah. Yeah. The podcast yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've made uh, my fair share of mistakes over the years on this and been hammered thoroughly for them. Um, so this documentary, it's made? Like, you've watched it? I'm sure they've shown it to you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's made. I mean, it, it just, uh, you know, I don't know how much I want to say about it because okay. the guys that I won't made it, um, right. I mean, it's a really, really good hmm. documentary, again, because this the subject is just so... I mean, you wouldn't be talking to me if the subject still wasn't interesting. Oh, it's amazing. Or we wouldn't have had 10 hours on Michael if these guys still don't continue to be front and center in the sport cultural world. So uh, I thought, you know, it just you just don't know out in uh, Hollywood. And I still hope that it uh, I still hope that it gets made, obviously, uh, because they did a great job on it. Yeah, me too. I'm going to be honest. I'm not a basketball guy. You know, I'm from Buffalo, New York. I grew up on hockey. You know, I learned to read because the great Jim Kelly um, lived, you know, I was lucky enough that he wrote in my newspaper. And when I was three years old, someone told me that there was like words in the paper about the Sabres. So I learned how to read, you know, because of hockey. And I love my, my team. Like my main team is the Saints. So I love football. Basketball is an afterthought for me. But when I started doing this show and started reading books, maybe I think, what did yours come out in 2012? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so the second year I was doing books, your your book came along and I read it. To this day, it's one of my like top two or three favorite books I've ever read for this show. And I've read a couple hundred now. And one, I mean, you're fantastic. One of the great basketball writers of all time. But like you said, also... The story is just so fascinating. 
all the different players and just there's something about it, right? Because so I read your book. I'm listening to your podcast. I watched the documentary on NBA TV. Now you're telling me there's another one. And I feel like, you know, walking to Hollywood and seeing if I can, you know, get a screening or something like it's like, you <laughs> well, know, I can't it, get enough of know, it. The, the problem with, I mean, Michael, you know, obviously uh, they drew their share of criticism because, and I don't know, Richard Deitch knows, great reporter, great friend of mine, knows more than I do about the specifics of uh, how much Michael's production company, all that was involved. And, you know, ESPN and Netflix production. All I can tell you is that when you start having to get the rights to to film, to uh, uh, video, excuse me, video from the NBA, or the International Olympic Committee, you are talking about a price level <laughs> that you, the average person, even the average filmmaker, even the above average filmmaker, can't begin to do. And that is part of the problem of trying to get this documentary made, was that to try to get, I mean, I, I can't quote you the price exactly, right. but to try to get five minutes of NBA footage, it almost breaks the budget of every single kind of filmmaker. So, you know, this, this Michael thing, the last dance, I mean, you need all the power you can get to bring you, you know, you need ESPN, you need Netflix, you need Michael's production company. Michael even has a separate deal about his stuff with the NBA. Like there's not only NBA rights, (laughs) There's Michael Wright. Right. Once again, I can't talk to you chapter and verse about it because I was not, obviously that's not my business thing, the documentary. They bought the book and I'm heavily involved in the documentary, but the bottom line of it and everything, you know, right. I, I have uh, nothing to uh, to do with it, but it's hard, man. <laughs> it's, Usually it's really hard. You, you know, hear about so. this with music all the time. You know, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie School of Rock with Jack Black. But he was. It's there's a it lot. Was of, on this morning. Yeah, it was on this morning. Yeah. There's all that rock music. You know the one scene where he's driving in the van and immigrant song by Led Zeppelin plays. I right. I heard him say that they spent as much money to get that Zeppelin song as almost all of the other songs in the movie combined because the Zeppelin stuff is notoriously expensive to license. Um. So we'll, add well the, even in the, the pod in, in the podcast. Yeah, I had a I had a, a couple things that I wanted to put in music wise that my guy told me we couldn't use. And in fact, in the next episode, the one that fortunately no one has ever heard yet, I actually sing a couple bars of something because we couldn't get the I couldn't I couldn't get the uh, music rights to it. I just said, "Oh hell with it! I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna <laughs> sing to try to illustrate something here." So. It, it, that was a different world for me. Sure. Uh, the only time I had ever come across it was a book that I did. Some publishers really take that very seriously. Like if you quote more than a stanza from a rock song, you know, they say you can't do anymore. And I had a publisher on one of the books that wouldn't let me quote one, two lines from a Paul Simon song, two or two or three lines. So. Yeah. I know it a little bit, but I really ran into it, you know, doing this podcast much more than I had before. Have you enjoyed it more or less or about what you expected doing the podcast, putting it together? 
I, I really enjoyed uh, the whole process of it. I mean, the personalness, whether that's a word or not, sure. the personalness of it. Um, you know, Zach Lowe, who's a great podcaster, had told me very early, you know, I used to, I taught a couple of college classes and Zach came on uh, and was talking about being a podcast. He said, no matter how, who you have on there, I'm sure you're finding this, you got to kind of make it your own that you got to kind of, you know, it's got to have your personality. And I know a couple people have, you know, commented on the podcast. Oh, this guy just wants uh, everybody to know, know he knew Michael Jordan and stuff like that. But that's not it. Right. I mean, you got to kind of make it, you got to make it your own and you know this. And so I've enjoyed really that part of it a lot. You know where I find that the most is I interview a lot of guys who have written books and usually by the time they get to me, they've done 50, 60 interviews for that book and that might even be conservative, you know? So I'm always thinking about that. Like, how can I make my interview with this guy mean anything because he's out there promoting this book very extensively? You know, when you write a book, you know, it's game on, you know, anyone that, and that's really why I read the books because I know I can get people, um, you know, that's yeah. one of the trick, you know, cause I'm nobody, you know, I'm not. Zach Lowe, you know, he can book a guy because, oh, I'll be on Zach Lowe. I got to book people. I got to get pe- I got to get creative. So that's why I did the books. But I find exactly what you got to get obscure people like Jack McCallum. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're I mean, you're being humble. But come on, you're a Hall of Famer. You're on my you're you're one of the top names on my jacket. When I tell people who I've had, <laughs> um, you're in the Frank Frank the Ford territory of people. I'm honored to say I've been on this. Um, the sportscasts are here with. Like I said, one of the great uh, basketball writers of all time, Jack McCollum. Uh, he's got the Dream Team book, which has been one of our favorites on this show for a long time. Uh, it's now a podcast called the Dream Team Tapes. Uh, it's three episodes are out so far. They come out every Monday. Every Monday, yeah. There's yeah. Uh, five more, eight of them. Yeah, so five yeah, more five to more. go. Uh, they're about thirty-ish minutes long each. So so far, maybe there's some uh, bigger ones. What? Which way are we go? Where are we going? So we got to talk about the elbow still. I'm sure that'll be a big part. You've kind of hinted at it. Um, the, the games themselves aren't the very the like the most compelling part of this story, right? So probably not a lot of time on the games themselves. They're all blowouts, and they won them all. Um, what else are you going to go into? Like, what did you? Is there something? I know you don't want to give it away, but maybe one or two things in the tapes you found that you want you're excited to bring to this. Well, I think uh, you're right. And one thing I learned early as a sports writer is if, if there's nothing to say about a game, then don't say anything. Sure. Right. <laughs> don't bother talking about games that weren't really games. There is literally, I don't think there's, um, the only game I talk about Coach. is in Barcelona, and they went into it in the document, in the Michael documentary about the Coach game. Right. When sure. Michael and Scottie Pippen decide they're going to, you know, <laughs> kneecap or Tony Kukoc. <laughs> so there's some of that in there. Sure. Uh, you know, you got to remember, I did this before the Michael doc, too. Right. And I, because of the pandemic, I couldn't go back into a New York studio. I would have probably undid a couple minutes only because they had done it so much in the Michael thing. But, you know, not not all that much. Uh it kind of progresses naturally. We go to the training camp in San Diego in episode four. We go on to, uh, you know, Portland, where the qualifying tournament in episode six, uh, five. We go on to Monte Carlo for the greatest game nobody ever saw in episode six. Episode seven is about Barcelona. 
And episode eight uh, is the aftermath. And I, I, you know, I think that's kind of interesting. I think people forget what happened when they came back. Larry Bird retired. The the uh, furor over or the debate over Mike uh, or Magic Johnson's HIV status was rekindled again because Carl Malone rekindled it, which was kind of bizarre. Uh, you had all the reasons that the Dream Team paved the way for the international players. So uh, when I went back myself and listened to all the audio, I was surprised that you know myself how much I had forgotten of the uh, story. So. I hope it. I hope it goes on in an interesting fashion. I'm really excited to hear. I know you've teased it. I'm looking forward to hearing about what it is that they thought could have sunk this team. Didn't someone tell you if it went on for two more weeks they would have had major? Pro- I mean, I'm sure it gets into egos and things like that, but they just seem so above and beyond everyone else. I, I'm, I'm interested to hear that. Also, I'm a little... Well, Larry, it was Go kind ahead. of Larry Bird. Uh, I don't want to give anybody false advertising. Larry Bird, who was the last person I interviewed, Larry mentioned, interestingly, how uh, he thought... Of, he was the only one that mentioned to me that there were little things going on. Oh, I only played six minutes. Oh, you know, Patrick played eight minutes. Why didn't I play? You know, sure. Larry was the only one that really mentioned that uh to be honest these guys did look upon it as a kind of kumbaya uh experience but there is some discord in episode uh there's a there's some stuff in episode seven and episode six about the leadership battle within the team which i think has been one of the uh undercovered aspects of the dream team the kind of subtle battle between jordan and magic out whose team it was sure and how larry bird uh kind of figured into that so i'd say that's a a pretty interesting uh, thing coming up i was a little disappointed you didn't you know go in for at least one with charles at the bar just to see what having one at the bar with charles is like you know what i mean zach lowe said that to me that was the biggest disappointment i said i had already had dinner and at least one or two drinks with Charles, who during the dinner told who he had just gotten out of his D, you know, he had served his DUI. And sure. I had had one drink, and Charles says, Hey, man, you're over the limit right now <laughs> in, in Arizona. <laughs> so he scared you. So I was giving him a ride, you know, he said home, and then he told me to stop at this bar. And I did the mental calculations. I had already been talking to him for two hours. I didn't know whether he wanted me to come in or not, whether he was just being polite. Right, sure. <laughs> and number th- number three uh, that I had already had, I can't remember whether I had one or two drinks, and all I need is a DUI. So uh, I just let him off and went on. <laughs> uh, a lot of people uh, would not have done that. I would have loved I'd love to see the video of you guys like in front of the bar, um, you know, and the car's running. And, you know, he's like, oh, come on, Jack, come in for one. You're like, oh, no, Charles, you know, I really should get back to the hotel. Oh, come on, man. No, you know, thanks. Appreciate it. And then. Well, he didn't. It's it's (laughs) not exactly like when I said no, it's not like exactly. Charles wasn't exactly pulling my arm to get in. He just hopped right out. (laughs) All right. See ya. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know who was waiting for him inside. I don't know whether it was a prearranged thing because it was sort of like we were heading to his house to take him home. And then he suddenly goes. Now pull in over here. <laughs> so I love it. I didn't know how to read it. 
hey, are there any other tapes? I mean, you've you've done, you've written a many stories, not just the Dream Team. When you're looking for this, did you find like a box of tapes from like the big Wilt profile you did, or I don't, you know, I don't know. Is there is there anything else? Well, it's funny that somebody asked me if I have my seven seconds or less tapes, the book I did on the Phoenix Suns back in '05 and '06, and I just did come upon a bunch of. Uh, I did a book with Jim Beheim fairly recently, like four or five years ago. And I have those tapes. That doesn't make, I don't think that's going to make a podcast. No. But I just did a Jerry, kind of a book on Jerry West and the Warriors. And a lot of those were done on my phone. By then I had, had upped my, uh, you know, technical game. And I was using the voice memo on the, on the phone. But that to me doesn't have, I should have just kept on with the radio shack. So the answer to your question is I have two boxes of tapes up there. And I guess one of these days, uh, I should go up there and see exactly what I have. Underrated, um, Jack McCollum book. I got to throw out is the, uh, sports illustrated book of the apocalypse three decades or two decades. I'm sorry. of sports absurdity. It's a fun one. I know that the ebook is still available. Um, if anybody wants to check yeah, that out. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was something I, when I was editor of uh, Scorecard, I invented this little thing called the, I don't know, the first week I was doing the Scorecard section, I wanted something different. So I started this week signed that the apocalypse is upon us. And it was really easy to do back before there was an internet. I mean, we used to spend hours combing through newspapers and obscure things to find out some ridiculous thing that nobody would believe that kind of summarized how absurd the world of sports was. And it was really fun and interesting to do. But when the internet came along, uh, you know, it, and a thousand websites, it became harder and harder to do, you know, because everything is discovered. Every little nugget is mined. So uh, a lot of those apocalypses that are in the book, we're back in the nineties and it would be interesting to see if we could still do the, uh, still do the same thing now. But, uh, I appreciate you mentioning the uh, book cause we always had a lot of fun digging out the apocalypses. Well, my routine, you know, back in the nineties, as you said, so I've been, I was, a, I'm still, I guess a sports Illustrated subscriber barely, but back then I would, it would come in the mail every Wednesday. I could count on it, you know, like, Every Wednesday it was there in the mailbox. I would get off the school bus, get run to the mailbox, get the Sports Illustrated, go in the house, set my brother up in front of the TV, get some iced tea and ranch Fritos. First thing I would read was the back page uh, Rick Riley column. Second thing I would read is all that stuff in the front, the apocalypse, the... Um, you know, like the inside stuff was in the front at that point, the sh- kind of shorter stuff. That that was yeah, like my, my routine, yeah. Yeah, they said it, quote, yeah, that was, uh, sure. And I mean, that's the hold, you know, that Sports Illustrated had for, uh, you know, greater part of a half century. And uh, we could, you could do a whole podcast on the reasons why that could not continue and did not continue. But uh, I was lucky uh, just through dint of when I was born, I was lucky to have been there, you know, when it was really, uh, one of the most, you know, it was one of the best magazines in the world, not just sports. And I'm just not saying that it no, was named, right. Yeah. You know, it, it was named, 
you know, got Best Magazine Award over a couple times over, you know, the New Yorker, National Geographic. Uh, and it was just hard, you know, for various reasons in our culture to uh, to keep that up. But uh, there are still some great stories in there and still some great writers. I mean, when Tom Verducci writes a baseball story or Scott Price writes a, you know, a personality feature, uh, it still doesn't get uh, better than that. It's just it's just a little different now. Absolutely. The, uh, when I started this in 2011, Richard Deitch was the first person from SI I had on the show. And then the, the next day, the um, I guess it was someone who worked for Time, but he was kind of in charge of the PR for SI. He wrote to me and he said, um, give me a call him. So I thought I was in trouble. And I called him and he said, oh, you know, like uh, Richard said it was fine. And like, I just wanted to tell you, you can book whoever from SI. I'm not really going to help you with it, but you know, like and I didn't know I needed anyone's permission. I, you know, like I was naive at the time, but um, that was like huge for me. And SI has been a huge part of this podcast. It's always been an honor to have you on, you know, Frank DeFord was on one time, like the great writers that made up the great history of a great magazine. And you still write for them a little bit. Like you just did the blogs. So when you're done with that someday, we'll cut you. I'll have you back on and we'll talk about everything that's happened since you left there full time. A um, couple quick things I want to mention. Uh, Bleeding Orange is the name of the book you mentioned with uh, Coach Beheim. Uh, if anyone wants to read that, six ninety nine on Apple right now. Um, the Dream Team book you can get for seven ninety nine on Apple right now. Uh, Unfinished Business uh, is four ninety nine. It's on the Celtic ninety ninety one Celtics. You can grab that. Um, and his uh, Golden Days, which is your latest book, is only eight ninety nine right now. So good prices on. Uh, the McCollum catalog on Apple eBooks right now, and you got to get one of my favorites. I don't even tell you if I ever read it, but uh, Foul Lines, the novel that you did with another one of my guys, John Wertheim, is available on there as well. All right, I'll get you out of here on this. I know you got to go get other things to do today. I know we're kind of at the tail end of this uh, pandemic or whatever, uh, but during these I've at, I asked John Feinstein this. I asked S.L. Price this. I got to get you. Give me some books or movies or TV shows that are like must watch or read with some of the extra time during the pandemic. Like what do you got? What What are some of the things that you would read or watch or maybe that you have already during this personally? Yeah. Um, well, uh, my wife and I have really uh, watched a great thing called Dead to Me. Do you know that? I do. It's I've got, watched season uh, one. I haven't watched two yet. That is good. Yes. Yeah, Christine Applegate. was on. So we really ratched, latched on to uh, Dead to Me. Even though it's dark, uh, we are fans of uh, Killing Eve, which is a great AMC thing, uh, you know, about the starring uh, Sandra O. Oh, sure. And it's kind of about, I mean, if you want to, something sounds dark, it's about a female, uh, you know, a sat- Russian assassin named villanelle so it's got its uh it's got its uh darkness uh to it but we enjoyed that uh we enjoyed a little hbo kind of uh another dark comedy i would say that's kind of our genre maybe the dark comedy type of thing little thing called run which is about a kind of a uh a man and a woman in a kind of a strange relationship so we've uh we've gone through that uh Reading-wise, uh, you know, New Yorkers a good time to do that. I've had a British 
uh, detective novelist named uh, Ian Rankin gone through a couple of uh, Ian Rankin's books, which I would not uh, otherwise have done. And between that and, you know, my own uh, writing and put together the podcast, I'd say I've managed to, and rehabbing from a uh, knee replacement. I would advise any time in a future pandemic, if you can can manage to have your (laughs) surgery. Time it out, right? Yeah. And then it gives you something, it gives you something to do (laughs) rehabbing during the, (laughs) during the uh, pandemic. So. You take all those things together, and uh, I've managed to uh, keep myself uh, busy. As someone who has had his fair shares of sickness and illness, I got—I love that you played the um, cancer deathbed card to uh, to get Larry Bird. I love that story. Um, you can hear it on uh, episode uh, two, I maybe one or two of the. Uh, I think it's on one. Yeah, yeah of, on one, and it, and it happens to be true, by the way. It's I love. I loved it. Uh, check that out. Uh, you can hear the whole story. But that's, uh, Mr. McCollum, that's something I do. I pull the Crohn's card, Crohn's surgery card whenever I can. Um, it's at, oh, yeah. It's at M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M-12 uh, at McCollum on Twitter. Uh, the Dream Team Tapes is the name of the podcast. It's available, you know, wherever your podcatcher catches podcasts. Uh, and it comes out every Monday. There's been three so far, five more to go. And, of course, the book, The Dream Team, which is where these great tapes come from, I give it the highest of recommendations of books I've read on this podcast. Um, And you can still get that in ebook or hardcover or whatever. It's out there. Anything else you want to plug or mention? Uh, No, please. I think you've done enough. You've gone through the whole catalog. So uh, that's fine. I appreciate that. Well, from the bottom of my heart, honestly, thank you so much for today. And all the other times, it means the world to me that you've taken the time to do this. I appreciate it. And uh, welcome to the club, as they say, all 700,000 strong. Um, uh, and best success. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high I want to thank the great Jack McCollum for being on the podcast today Appreciate his time. We're going to get to Richard Deitch in a second, but first, the book club, book of the month. We got some good books this month. The first one is a book called The Eighth Wonder of the World, uh, The True Story of Andre the Giant. It's by Bertrand Hebert and Pat Laprade. Uh, and Pat was a part of the Andre the Giant documentary and also was on The Dark Side of the Ring uh, that was aired on Dino Bravo. I started reading The Eighth Wonder of the World this week. It's amazing. Uh, the story of Andre is amazing, and maybe we'll work on getting Pat next time, depending on how some balls I have on the air fall. But real, we're getting close on this one, The Eighth Wonder of the World, the true story of Andre the Giant. I have a copy to give away. If you're interested, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. 
Another book I wanted to mention real quick. I got this in the mail from uh, the publisher. It's about the the book, or excuse me, the TV show Modern Family. It's called The Untold Oral History of One of Television's Groundbreaking Sitcoms by a guy named Mark Freeman. If you're interested in the show Modern Family, you want this book, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. With that said, two baseball books. Uh, one I'm really excited about, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask by John Pessa. Interesting fuck-up by me on the podcast last week with Jane Levy. My whole premise uh, for having Jane on was that Mickey Mantle was celebrating his 95th birthday. It'd be a great time to talk to Jane about Mantle. Well, it wasn't his 95th birthday. It was Yogi's 95th birthday. And I had heard that, and I got my wires crossed. Apologies on that. But this book, Yogi by Pessa, is what I'm going to read next as soon as I can finish this Andre book. And John will be on to talk about it. Uh, I have a copy of this book as well. Uh, it's a big one, and I'm looking forward to digging into that. Uh, the last one, and this one I finished. It's called Cleveland Rocked. The Personalities, Sluggers, and Magic of the 1995 Indians. I mentioned last week that I maybe wanted to do something with the 95 Braves. I thought that maybe it'd be a good idea. But then I had this Cleveland Rock book, and maybe that would take care of that. My idea is maybe to do one podcast where, yes, we have Zach on to talk about the book like we normally would. But then maybe also I'll get someone from the Brave side of the story to tell the Braves side of that and do one podcast that's sort of on the 95 World Series. Maybe that'll work out. Maybe it won't. It's an idea floating through my head. Uh, but those are the books, Yogi, Cleveland Rocked, and The Eighth Wonder of the World. If you want a copy of one of these books, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Maybe we can work it out. All right. With that said, it's time for Deitch. Let's take a break, and we will be right back uh, with Richard Deitch. <laughs> Our second guest today was on the third ever episode of the Sportscasters. He's a University at Buffalo graduate who is living in Toronto now. He works for The Athletic. He does some sports radio up in Toronto. He's got his twins. They're quarantined with his whole family up there in Toronto. It's been crazy for him, but he's making some time today to be on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to our friend Richard Deitch. How are you, Richard? First of all, you know that uh, given all the times I've been on this podcast, like I appreciate when you do not give a long intro. Yes. You know, there's nothing sort of, I have to do it on my podcast. I know people have to do it. You do out of respect for the guests, but sort of as I've always asked you, it's no one needs to hear about my incredibly boring career or resume. So thank you. The other thing about this podcast, and now I'm basically going to screw you here by forcing you to put Jack McCallum first, <laughs> is that I love the fact that I am on a podcast with Jack McCallum, who I worked with for, let me sort of do the math here, you know, at least 15 years at Sports Illustrated, um, not only obviously a Hall of Fame basketball writer and, and, and one of the sort of the all-timers at Sports Illustrated, but a, a great guy, great guy to hang with. I spent many times, uh, many nights with him at, at Olympic Games and worked for him. He was the scorecard editor for a couple of years in-house. And with a guy named Rich O'Brien, who's an incredibly talented editor, so uh, could not could not be happy, more happy to see that the McCallum's on this podcast. He uh, is one of those guys in the business who his like writing and editorial ability actually match um, match his 
generosity and just being a good dude. Well, the sportscasters is definitely a place that shows him the respect he deserves. Unlike the last dance, uh, which cut an interview with him to to meet with J- Justin Timberlake, <laughs> which like okay, Justin Timberlake, but then they used what? How long was he on the documentary? Seventeen seconds. Well, I mean, you know, having talked to uh, having talked to Jason Hare, the director, many many times, I did a lot of stuff, obviously for the athletic. You know. You got to keep in mind, like they interviewed more than a hundred people, and they interviewed a lot of reporters of that era. You know, from Aldridge to David Aldridge, right. Don Day, uh, Mark Vansill. So, I have no doubt that McCallum McCallum was terrific on air and, and provided good insight. But, and this is not to knock Jack at all. At a certain point, I'm sure if you're the director, a lot of that stuff becomes very similar. So That's fair. They have to sort of just pick, right? You know, I think if you're, I think if you're them, you do want to try to limit as best you can the number of sort of reporter voices, so it doesn't become a documentary where it's just sort of journalists waxing on about the Jordan era. You know what I mean? And he had Sam Smith, sure, and Mark Bansell and Adon Day and all. This is off the top of my head. I'm probably missing, you know, not to mention the broadcasters of the year. You know, Costas and. Uh, um, My only pushback, Marv Albert. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot. They already had a lot of media. I guess is what I'm saying. My only pushback would be you did a whole episode on the Dream Team, and this is the guy that literally wrote the book on the Dream Team. You know, I, I want to at least that's, hear him in that. That's where he should have been. Right in that I'm section. With you on that. Uh, yep, look, at I enjoyed the Last Dance. Um, I'm not a huge basketball guy, but as I told Jack and I've told others, I do love the stories that come out of basketball, like. I loved the Dream Team book. I loved the last, the last great game by uh, Gene Wojciechowski. Like I loved the stories of basketball. I loved the two part Lakers and Celtics, thirty for thirty. This thing though was a little overrated. Um, it didn't need to be that long. Uh, Jordan having the final cut, if that's how you would put it, uh, definitely hurt it. And why did they? And I, I asked this to Jack, and I'll ask it to you too to get your opinion. Wasn't the actual story good enough? Why did they need to stretch the truth so much? I'll give you a few examples. In the first episode, they go on this long rant about how in Jordan's second year after his injury in the last game of the season, he could only play 14 minutes or the coach would be hurt. Then you look at the game log, he played almost 40 minutes that game. The only he, There's only two games after he returned to the 15 or so that he played where he, he held to the 14-minute limit. So stuff like that is weird. The Rodman... Had a, Jordan had to go to Vegas to get Rodman. Well, no, he went across the street. Like, why do you think they made that choice? Wasn't the story itself good enough? Why so much right, so, credibility canceled there? Yeah, so a couple things there because you asked a lot of questions uh, amid there. One, I disagree with your take on the doc. I thought it was great. It's incredibly ambitious, and smart, uh, and interesting and entertaining. Is it a unvarnished look at Michael Jordan? Of course not. Uh, it's it, it's not even it's not this is not Ken Burns filmmaking it's not even close. Um, you know, one, Jordan's production company is one of the producers of the uh, of the or not, production company I should say. Right. Jump Twenty Three, a Jordan company, is uh, is one of the producers on the project along with the NBA and ESPN and Netflix. And so, um, so no, it is not an unvarnished doc. But for its ambition. For the amount of work that the filmmakers did for the entertainment value, I thought it was fantastic. Is it as good as the OJ doc? No. Is it one of the five, ten best things ESPN has ever done? 
in my opinion, yes. Wow. To address some of your other... I don't think yes. it's a top 5, 10, 30 for 30, let alone top t- 5, 10 thing they've ever oh, done. It absolutely, it, absolutely, it absolutely is. But it, this is, it's all subjective. It doesn't, sure. it doesn't mean you're right or wrong. Fair enough. Right? Yeah, no, that's right. That's how right. We, how we processed it. Um, I don't know. I feel like you're being a little harsh, a little bit harsh on that stuff. Like, it, the if you want to say that the film sort of always cast Jordan in a positive light. Well, certainly more than not, although I think that film totally comes across showing his bullying. Him totally can be an asshole to his teammates. Um, the, the, you know, I have to sort of go back on sort of the Rodman one, but, you know, I, I, I don't, let's put it this way. If you found any kind of factual inconsistency, small as they are, I don't think that was intentional by the filmmakers. If anything like that comes up, I think that that's sort of just an, an unintentional omission. And the last one on the Jordan having final cut, he didn't have, he didn't have final cut. What he, what he ended up having was, um, was this, the, he asked, and obviously he was going to get it given you're not getting access to Michael Jordan, unless you sort of play by his rules here. He wanted to have the last word after the interviews were conducted by the filmmakers on whatever the subject was. So in that sense, he had a big, big shaping of the editorial process. No doubt Jordan's people um, gave suggestions to the filmmakers as the ESPN and Netflix when they saw a rough cut. But, you know, Hare told me that Jordan never asked for anything to be taken out. He never uh, told him he couldn't ask any questions. But the reality is, like, you know, this is just life in the big city. Michael Jordan had a ma- major impact on how that documentary ultimately came out. But I think he could probably say that about, what, 90% of most documentaries, 95% of most documentaries. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, if you're giving access to somebody or not giving access to somebody, you're going you're gonna to shape that doc. But for what it was, I, I liked it a lot. Um, I, thought it was, I thought it was really well done. And obviously, um, uh, I, I think I'm self-aware also to – Acknowledge that probably part of the reason I liked it as much is because there's not much there wasn't there wasn't much going on right limited content when it, time. When it was on yeah. so it so it you know I think it amplifies how exciting it was to to watch this stuff yeah I mean every time it was on it was like the thing on it was like you know almost like watching like the U.S. women's soccer team gold medal game or something where everyone is just talking about the same thing don't know why I thought of that example yeah. but uh, all right I got no, a lot but, of, but yeah, yeah no but that's, that's a legit basically it. it you know, it captured, if you are of a certain age and you are on social media, it essentially captured the conversation each and every night. Sure. I got a bunch of things. Let's go on to the next one. I had never heard of something called Call Her Daddy a week ago. Um, but, and I'm not a big barstool guy. My brothers are. I think they're more the target there. Uh, and they love it. They love uh, Portnoy and his antics. And they just had a big thing, the drama, HBO. There's some guy that is somewhat related to HBO, maybe gave bad advice. Let's talk about podcasts for a second in relation to this. Uh, A huge money deal. They're debating mid six figures. Uh, Joe Rogan just got like a billion dollars to go to Spotify, $100 million to go to Spotify. Uh, They had already uh, bought Bill Simmons out to go there. His company, Ringer, is going to be a bigger part of Spotify. Uh, what about the money that's going into podcasts lately? And um, what did you think of the Barstool Call Her Daddy feud? 
Yeah, I mean, we'll start with the latter one first. I mean, honestly, I don't have much insight on that at all. I, I probably read like two or three stories tops. I did not listen to the yeah, podcast where they discussed it, so I couldn't even tell you the sort of the back and forth specifics of of that. You know, part of it is just like, you know, trying to survive with two little kids here. Like sure. my, my time has to sort of go to, you know, with two jobs. So my time's got to go to sort of the best time management I can. On a on a larger macro thing, which I could probably speak to, given Barstool and this stuff, the, there is there is phenomenal money to be made if you are at the sort of the level that that Call Her Daddy podcast is, or the part of my take guys from Barstool or Simmons, obviously Rogan. I'm not. If you want to just keep it to sports, we can keep it to sports. You know, the the people that you see, uh, the, the Apple charts are not really accurate, sort of to. Um, to the point of no return, but you know they're they're the best sort of one of the better metrics we have now. So we'll sort of just use them as a broad base understanding that they can't be perfectly accurate. You know, if you're in that like top fifteen or top ten grouping um, where your podcast is getting, you know, whatever uh, more than like a hundred thousand downloads each episode, and then obviously in some cases like you know the the big dogs, you know, more than a million downloads. 500,000 downloads in each episode, you're looking at significant money, which is what I think the stories on that call her daddy uh, with, you know, all the stuff going on sort of let more of the public know that the amount of money that could be made by talent at that level is big time money, you know, half million, million bucks. I'm sure part of my take just became a solo podcast away from the Barstool Empire. I would think those guys are making a couple million dollars uh, annually. So there's huge money to be made at that highest level because you're dealing with mass, mass audience and you could sell, you know, you could sell against it. You could sell against it either inside each podcast or you could sell it as a presenting sponsor. Where it gets into a whole different world is below 100,000, between that 50,000 and 100,000 mark and let's say the 10,000 and 50,000 mark. That's where the numbers get wildly um, lower. So... You know, I think if you have a podcast, let's say that generates about thirty, forty thousand downloads um, a week, which would put you, you know, in the top whatever ninety, ninety, ninety fifth percentile. Right. I don't know if you can be making, you know, more than twenty five grand, twenty grand on that podcast. So that's from everything I've learned is the threshold to make a little bit of money is fifty thousand downloads a week. The real threshold, though, like when you're talking about, like, can we significantly do? this and make a like a career out of it i think is a hundred thousand and above in terms of averaging um money and then when you get into like the rogan level and i don't know what his download numbers are but i assume they're in the multiple millions you know that's when you can make crazy money because you're you know if you have that kind of audience that's that's dedicated and coming to you every week they stay with you for hours i mean that's like if you think about it what's the equivalent of that? like the nfl essentially you know where you'll stick with a product for the same product for three hours. So, so I would just say to you, like, it's great that the people at the top are making that kind of money, but I really think they are, they, they are really outliers. Right. They're and the people the at the top. The, right. the majority of the people podcasting, one, they're not making any money. They're doing it really for the love of, of doing it. Like probably like you are. Sure. Then there's another group that might make a ton, a little bit of money. Then there's another group that may make, you know, twenty fifteen thousand, which is a nice little side project. Then I think there's another group that maybe gets you into the fifty thousand to a hundred thousand, and then the over a hundred thousand is where you know you could do this for a living. 
So I think there's tiers of all this stuff. The question will be, of course, like everything else, is where are we heading? And are there still room for new podcasts? No. Where is the market? How saturated is it? And that's, right. those are the more interesting larger questions. There's 700,000-plus podcasts, and 99% of them have less than 10,000 downloads is what I read. Oh, so there you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that tells you a lot, right? Yeah, so 1% are above 10,000 of the 700,000. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, Spotify is really interesting to me because I was reading about them, and it, you know, a company like them who already has such a strong paywall infrastructure in, in place, I really feel like they're maybe positioning to try to build up the podcast roster to a point where maybe they can put that behind the paywall as well. Not saying that would be Rogan and Simmons exclusively, but maybe at least part of right. their stuff would find their way behind that. It just seems like that's what they're positioning for, um, potentially. Well, you know, this, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say what, yeah. what it seems to me is that they're, they're trying to buy, in their opinion, sort of best in content brands, you know, um, if you think that's the ringer. And if you think that's Rogan, and those are, you know, obviously well known, and I think brands that are that are really uh, beloved by their particular audiences, you know, once you have the content that people want, well, then it gives you, you know, all sorts of mechanisms to um, to do stuff with. So you're right, you know, I don't know if that's subscription service, I don't know if that's, um, you know, sort of paywall stuff. I don't know, if, well, you know, there's much smarter people who run Spotify than me. But once you have content that people really, really want, well, you're then you're in a position where you can make money off that content. Um, I do think, just because obviously look where I work at The Athletic, I think ultimately the only way sort of good content survives is, is to basically have people pay for it. You, the, to make things free, certainly in a post-pandemic world as well, just strikes me as a, as a, as a business that's destined to fail you you have to you know you can have businesses i guess that are ad supported but i i think that the your your long-term best chances of success are convincing the public that is interested in you that this is is worth your money netflix has basically convinced people that you know whatever they're paying each month it is it is a vital resource like electricity it's like it is worth it to them to pay that money and I think that's what companies like Spotify or The Athletic or whoever, you know, ESPN's been doing this obviously for 40 years. You have to have people pay for what you do. And I think that's your best chance of, of survival. And then if you're Spotify, if you have these brands that people want, I think people are willing to pay for brands that they want. Well, it's so interesting because, and we've kind of mixed audio and video together in our discussion here, but initially people walked away from cable and into the subscription model because they could save so much money. But now as this has evolved... We've added so many subscriptions that it's got to be reaching a tipping point, right? Because before it was, I'm going to get rid of that. I'll grab Netflix and maybe one or two others. Now, if you think about it, it's like, all right, 10 bucks on Netflix. Let me give 10 on Hulu. I got to get the Disney Plus thing for my daughter. Let me put 10, 15 there. Let me get the HBO one because I'm a big Sopranos guy. All right, I want to read Athletic. Let me throw that subscription in there. You know, now let me throw in a subscription for my music. I'll go with the Apple one on that. Um, you know, like at some point, I feel like there's a saturation or a tipping point for all these subscription models. So maybe right now it's a little bit of a battle to make sure that when that moment comes, you're the subscription that is invaluable and that has to be kept. Yeah, uh, listen, I think uh, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, they're, 
<laughs> it's become incredibly clear that the um, sort of streaming service world or the or the uh, non-cable world has become essentially as expensive as cable right. was, you know, however many years ago. If you, you know, if, if these products are interest are you interested in, but you know. If you want every major league baseball game, you're gonna have, and you want to stream it on your laptop, that costs money. If you want the WWE network on your laptop, it costs money. If you want Netflix and Hulu, and eventually you're probably paying more than your cable package. You know, the, the cable argument now today is we give you all of this stuff in one bundle that makes it, you know, in an easy place for you to click on. Now, if I'm a sports fan, that's correct, you do that. If I'm not a sports fan, well, you're basically charging me an insane amount of money because you have sports on there that I don't want. Um, you know, we've now moved much more to an a la carte world, and I think that will continue. But what I think consumers will find is that the a la carte world may end up being more expensive than the cable world. And DirecTV has the next really interesting decision to make, right? Because I'm a DirecTV subscriber simply for the NFL ticket because I'm such a huge Saints fan. That's my number one thing. I need the Saints games. So I bite the bullet. I pay for DirecTV, which is like my second highest bill besides my mortgage. You know, it's like right up there. Um, and they got, I think, one year before the NFL can opt out of the last two years of that exclusive deal. And when that happens, how is DirecTV going to determine what the value is of that subscription and that exclusivity? Because without it, I don't know how they sustain their business. But then in the other sense, they're now owned by AT&T and DirecTV isn't really what they do to make money. So... I don't know. Maybe they don't put the money behind it that they would have when DirecTV was independent. Yeah, and then you didn't even mention the fact that I'm not sure the NFL wants DirecTV anymore. They're, they're, uh, you know, it seems like their customers are not particularly happy with it. Yeah, it uh, talk about their NFL, their NFL consumers. Yeah. So I would not be surprised if somebody else picks that up. Um, you know, I'm not. I, I don't have any inside information on that, but that would, I think, everything you said. Um, could totally happen. I, I'm not sure the NFL wants it. I don't know if it's in DirecTV's best interest anymore. Um, that will be a massively um, valuable property for somebody, though. I think the NFL can get a lot more money for that property as well. Well, um, I think what so, they're definitely going to do is split it in two, and there will be a separate streaming. You know, because like, yep. right now, the only way to stream that is if you can prove to DirecTV that you can't put their antenna up. Right, so I think the next time there, at the very least, there will be a streaming portion of that that will be separate from Directv's bundle. Maybe yeah, Direct, maybe the, they uh, own it, but yeah, I was gonna say I know the, um, you know, I know that like the zone would be interested in that um, if they're still alive. It's very possible. Maybe, maybe this is, uh, you know, maybe this is the time Amazon comes in, sure. and grabs it. You know, we'll, we'll I think they're. Uh, I think they're a legitimate threat to that as well. I just, again, if I if you ask me today, if I had to guess, I don't think Directv keeps that contract after this uh, current terms are up. You just made my wife very happy. A um, couple more <laughs> quick ones. I gotta let you go soon. Uh, Barstool. One last thing on Barstool, man. You know what they figured out that, unfortunately for me, there's no way to recreate it on my world. But they found a way to make Barstool being about Barstool the main draw. Howard Stern created this, I think. I mean, he's the master of it. He made the Howard Stern Show mostly about the Howard Stern Show, and that's what made it so successful. You know, creating the characters within the world, like the Stuttering Johns and the Baba Booies and all that, and Barstool. Man, they're so good at that. And they're really great at making themselves martyrs, too, and making their fans rally to support it. And uh, I admire that about them. I don't know if you thought about that at all. Yeah, 
Yeah. No, there. I think I think part of the I think part of the genius of Barstool is that they have created a world that people are interested in and want to be a part of, even tangentially. Um, you know, obviously, not everything they do is is good at all. Um, at the same time, I think um, you know when it comes to uh, let's say podcasting, yeah, you have to sort of step back and like be really impressed by uh. Eric and Ardini and just how they've blown out that business. But I think you are correct. What, what, they, what they have done is followed the Stern model of making the people sort of in the office characters in a larger drama. And so I'm not saying it's not about their content and people are interested in their content, but you are correct. They're, they seem to be as interested in the lives of the content creators as they are in the content. And if you have that, man, you got a sustainable business to me. And they're even – Stern wasn't a merch guy, but they are. I had my little cousin in like a Christmas exchange, and he's a big barstool guy. So I thought, oh, I'll buy him a shirt, you know? And I went on their website, and I accidentally clicked the like show all page. It was like 900 pages of merch. So they have uh, – Yeah. They, yeah. Uh, yeah. They've – again, they've, they've – <clears throat> they have figured out a way to monetize a lot of stuff that other media companies have not. All right, blowing through a quick couple quick more. What is the Monday Night Football booth going to look like? Do we have any idea at this point? I mean, I think it's going to be Steve Levy and somebody. Okay. Um, now that somebody could be Brian Greasy, Dan Orlovsky. It could be a combination of a Brian Greasy, Dan Orlovsky, and someone else. But I, I, for sure they're going to stay internal. And I think I would be stunned if it's not Levy at this point. I think all indications point to him. And then I think it's Levy and one of either somebody he's worked with before, like Greasy or like an Orlovsky type. And I think they <clears throat> make this a sort of a, you know, like almost a one-year deal, and then they'll reevaluate at the end of next year. But no big names coming into the Monday Night Football booth. It's, it's, they'll stay in-house. So this will be the Iron Sheik-like championship reign, the bridge <laughs> to Hogan. Well, who knows? Maybe maybe people fall in love with the team. I mean, you know, if you're Steve Levy or Olavsky, obviously you take this job. Right. You don't even think twice about it. But if you're asking me, will this be the booth two years from now? I mean, how do you not go to Vegas and bet against it? You right. Know, it's, it's, it just seems like that. Ho- the, the, when when Sheik won the belt from Backland, they had Hogan in-house. They knew that was – the difference yes. is ESPN doesn't have the Hogan yet. They're hoping and they're right. trying – just like they can't seem to get anyone to sign with them, just yeah. yet. You need if you're if you're Steve leaving down Alaska, you really need like like a uh, Daniel Bryan kind of like you know uh, like right. You're a fan base coming out and, <laughs> and and begging for you to stay. I'm not saying it can't happen, but you know that would be a lot. Let's put it that way. Let's talk real quickly about back after this and Mike Francesa because nothing fascinates me more than this. And when I started this list for you as we were working this out, it's even taken another turn. From there, I think last time we had you on, I was talking to you about how I think it's always been horrible for Francesa. I couldn't believe that he allowed it in the sense that all this guy does is make him look like a buffoon over and over again. And finally, they decided after like a Trump rant or something went viral that they weren't going to do it anymore. And uh, the guy I'm kind of explaining for people who aren't sure what this is about. And the guy that runs the Twitter account back after this said Mike is dead to him. And was never going to do his stuff anyway. Moved on to like Colin Cowherd. Then Francesa kind of backed off his position. And now back after this has backed off his position. And here we are again where Francesa does a show. And 
back after this, finds a way to make something he said in that show make him look like a buffoon and an idiot. What am I missing? Why is this good for Mike Francesa? I don't see it. What is good about this for him? Well, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with this because, like, just sort of so Jimmy Trina esque to, to talk about Francesa, not me. Um, <laughs> where where do I start? I mean, it's fun. It's a you fun know, first topic. of all, if Mike Francesa says stupid stuff, that's on Mike Francesa, not not on not on any person who's taping Mike Francesa and putting it out there. I I guess okay that the if you're Entercom, this is just a guess. I don't know you you're playing the sort of you're playing the game of we'd rather have the publicity for the show even if the publicity is negative for the host because if we don't have publicity if we don't have this publicity online we're really not we're not getting any kind of traction anymore in the marketplace cuz Mike no longer is you know 2 to 6 and or 1 to 6 and the the king of New York City so i think that they're made it they made a calculus in that we're we'll let this guy do this. We don't want to hear from people anymore about how we're restricting the content. But yeah, this guy's not gonna you know, Funhouse is not gonna he's not gonna do three hours of here's the best of Mike Francesa, but not that I want to defend Funhouse, but like Francesa's like I'm not gonna say he's mailed it in, but his show really I feel is just hard to listen to these days. It's it's sort of all over the map. It's he, I think, unfortunately, because I think Frances is a bright guy. I think he he became sort of one of these creatures who really sort of believed his own influence a little bit, believed his own megalomania, and and didn't necessarily adopt with uh, you know with the times. But I also don't think he cares at this point. Whatever he's, he's in his sixties, right. his made heart a shit, is somewhere else. Made a shit, made a shitload of money. He's still mm-hmm. getting an hour mm-hmm. of airtime and. New York City, they're letting them talk about politics. I mean, to me, that's, that's continuing the lottery ticket. So, you know, and he's I'm getting sure his Mike Sunday show like, back this year, his Sunday show, yeah, which he listen, loves. He doesn't like the fact that this guy exists. You, all, anybody who says they don't read negative stuff online and, and, and don't react to it in line, including me, I'd be the first to admit when people write shit about me, I don't particularly love it. Um, but it is sort of part of the, you know, it's part of the world when you're sort of, when you're doing something on air. So that's my guess. Again, I didn't talk to Entercom, but I, I think rather than play the, the 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 larger role of the big bad company that that is restricting a a, um, a person who runs a a Twitter a pop a very top popular Twitter account restricting their access, you let you give you let the access happen, and you live with the negative stuff that's being said about your. Um, talent. I mean, at the end of the day, Mike Francesa is so tiny now to Entercom that it doesn't really matter, I think, good or bad, what anybody's saying about him. Sure. Uh, Michael K. going to just run away with that slot forever now, or do you think they can put together something in that afternoon drive to make that a competition again? Well, I don't think... You know, I don't live in New York anymore, so I'm really removed from this, but I don't... um, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I shouldn't say that. I, I no, I don't think. I don't think it's a it's a done it's a total done deal that the fan can't win that time slot back with the right talent because you know, um, it's still a, it's still very much a local sports market. They want to talk about the Yankees and the Mets and um, you know the Giants and the Jets and the Knicks, and I know K does that, but 
if you have the right talent on WFAN from two to six, who who people are enjoying more than those other guys, Kay and LaGreca, um, in terms of talking New York sports, yeah, I think they can win it back. Um, but I don't think the current group is going to be Kay and Francesa for I'm sorry, Kay and LaGreca uh, for a and for a while. You know, right? if, if ESPN was what really ESPN is trying to figure out, and they just have not figured out is a lead into the K show and then a lead out. Right. They've never really been able to figure those two parts out. Yeah, they're like the modern K Rock. You know, back in the day K Rock couldn't figure out how to yeah, get exactly. anything going after Stern. Who to follow Howard, exactly. Yeah. It's a little bit of that. All right, All right. the the sportscasters uh just about done here with our man Richard Deitch. Episode three. Uh, was his debut way back in 2011 and stuck with me all the way since, over 300-plus episodes. Uh, You can find Richard at Richard Deitch on Twitter. Um, As he will admit, it's a tough place right now, Uh, but he will always end any any interaction with a a positive note of his hope that you remain safe. So there is a... Yeah, I'm trying trying to do that just mostly to... To remind myself that we're all in this together. Right. There is at least that. And, of course, you can read his articles on The Athletic, uh, which is worth the money. Why do you think video didn't work at The Athletic? Um, well, I thought the video that The Athletic did was awesome, actually. I think uh, it really – I mean, Armin Katane and his uh, production group were really talented people. Um, but, you know, I think it's – I think in the environment, it's hard to sell. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to sell – Low-end video or high-end video, um, whether you're the athletic or whether you're um, any place. The other thing is, and this is this has no nothing to do with Armin or, or any of his group. They're very, very talented folks. Um, I, I don't know if people I – I don't think – you think of how long you would have to really market the athletic as a video place to get people to subscribe for video. Sure. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, you might, they might check it out. But I, I don't think it can bring in new subscriptions because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a it's a company uh, that focuses around writing and reporting. Yeah, I want to reach and you not on that. video. Yeah, I'm there to reach you. Yeah, so yeah. I think I, I, I think like what he was doing could certainly fit like for some other place. I just don't know if the the athletic is the right fit because I I, I find it very hard to believe that like you can convince people at this point to to pay for a. Uh, website because of their sports video play, unless you know they're ESPN Plus, where you're getting live games. So I think right. that I think I just think it's too tough. Uh, I think it's too tough to sell, and I think that's uh, I can't speak for my bosses, but that that's ultimately I think what sort of they made the decision that we should sort of put our resources elsewhere. The sports media podcast is available once a week. You can get that wherever you catch pods. Uh, do you have any questions for me, Richard? Um. Yeah, what's yeah? I guess my one question would be, what is the COVID nineteen situation like in Buffalo? How well, uh, how are people reacting now at the moment as we're talking on May twenty seventh? I think they've lost the people at this point. Um, I think I've been out for my. I have to go to the doctor still. I have to get treatment, so I, I get out once or so a week. And when I was first going out, I would come home and I would say to my wife, "Like you will not believe how." eerie it is out there how empty the roads are you know how quiet it is um and as the time has gone on that has been less and less and as the weather here has gotten nicer and nicer i think we got a break in the sense that the may and the april were very cold um but now as the weather is broken it was 93 degrees here yesterday um 
it's going to be harder and harder to keep people inside. But one thing I have noticed is we don't seem to have as big of a problem with the masks as other area. Pretty much anywhere I go where you would hope people have masks, like in the supermarket, you know, a place where you really can't be away from people. um, I haven't seen one person without one. So that seems to have caught on here for whatever reason, but... People are out now. People are outside, and it's going to be harder. The way the winters are here, it's going to be very hard to keep people inside in the, in the summer. You know, so. Well, yeah, no, I get that. I, yeah, my my hope is for you know places like Buffalo, obviously in Toronto, that there's not a really horrible second wave because you know then weather um, weather complicates things. But you know, it's very. Well, I mean, Canada and the Buffalo are, are very different, even though we're you know we're so close to each other. Sure. But uh, you know, even here, where I think. Canadians have done a really good job of listening to public health officials. You know, last weekend it was tough that we had yeah. major parks where people were sort of all over the place, not practicing social distancing. So it's it's a tough challenge for the numbers. For, uh, the numbers out of Al- of Georgia and Florida have been sort of promising. Hopefully, they're accurate. Yeah, uh, you know, hopefully they're accurate, and that's been promising. the The last thing I'll say about it is that I had a meeting, a Zoom meeting with my surgeon. I had three surgeries last year. I might have one. This year, well, I will have one as soon as things clear up. But we were talking, and he said, as a doctor, the thing he's most worried about in terms of second wave is all the medical things we've been ignoring, catching up to people. You know, like the lack of colonoscopies, the lack of mammograms. Yeah, um, no, yeah, for sure. Right, yeah, that's the that's what he's that's really a major, worried about. Major scary wave. issue. Yeah, a lot of surgeries have been put off. Yep. And then the other thing is, you have a lot of people, particularly a lot of old, elderly people, who are afraid to go to the hospital because they think they're going to catch this. And they're putting off uh, sure. they're putting off medical treatment that they need. So, yeah, I mean, I will say a lot of things we got to deal with politically. All the people I support and those I don't, I'm trying to give them a little bit of a pass because when I think about all these issues, I say to myself, "Man, I'm glad I'm not the one who had to make that decision." You know, it's such a difficult balance on all ends. So, you know, hey, yep. uh, God bless whoever has to make these decisions, and hopefully they make the right ones. All right, anything else you want to plug? That's it. That's it. I appreciate uh, appreciate the invite. I'm glad we were able to catch up. All right. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, um, I hope that the rest of this year is better than the beginning for you. I know you've been through a tough time. You've been public about that. I wanted to extend my condolences on the air. And also, I just wanted to say, like, thank you so much for all the years of doing this together. I know we've had sort of a special relationship. Someone tried to steal our idea and go viral a few weeks ago. Did you see that? No, I did not. Yeah, they took your tweet. They took your tweet with my name like tagged in it, and they were trying to pretend like it was their tweet and trying to like build up pictures, but it failed miserably. Nobody, the person didn't have any juice; it just died on the vine. But I thought it was funny that they're. Well, like, I, was, I would, I, yeah. The other thing too is, I would say is in 2020, my, that would probably be a lot harder to do. Right, right, right. <laughs> Although we could little, use the yeah. we could use the positivity maybe, but yeah, we could we, use the positive <laughs> stuff. That's true. All right, th- thank you, Richard. All right, Steve. Be well. I want to thank Richard Deitch and Jack McCollum for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this episode of the Sportscasters and all of the episodes 
on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And if you feel the urge to give us a five-star review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher because allegedly it promotes social awareness or social promotion or something like that. Please do it. My friend Peter Winson says it's good for the podcast. Peter himself has his own show, Greetings from Allentown. You can follow him on Twitter at Pod. He has a new episode coming out basically simultaneously with this one about the WWF in 1997. So please check that out. Don't forget Adrian Dater at Dater on Twitter. Find out what's up uh, with our buddy Adrian there. All right, one last thing. I wanted to tell a quick story about how I ended up buying a grill and a television about 10 minutes apart. So when we got news of the stimulus and uh, found out that we might be getting uh, this $1,200 for myself, $1,200 for Tammy, $500 for Paula, we kind of looked around the house and said, what could we do to improve the house? How can we... Uh, make better what we have here? What do we need? Now, what can we improve that, you know, maybe with our normal budget, it's hard to fit it in. You know, recently we've gotten a new driveway. We've gotten a new bed. Um, I got a new laptop. Things like that. What can we get? So I really want to get a new TV. It's the one we have is old. It's from 2009. 2008 I think I got it late 2008 early 2009 that's over 10 years old that's ancient for a TV we also wanted to get a grill we got the grill in 2010 and it barely works so we've been dragging our feet a little bit because the problem with trying to buy a TV or a grill uh, when you can't really go to the store and do it is that no matter what TV especially with the TV no matter what TV you decide to buy, uh, that TV has one-star reviews. There isn't a single TV on the internet without a one-star review. So what would happen is I would find one in the price range I wanted to spend, and within seconds, someone in the reviews would talk me out of that TV. And even if the ratio was like 1,700 five-stars to 10 one-stars, I would get scared off because I'm like, what if I'm one of the 10? I don't want to screw this purchase up. So I've been being kind of patient with the TV. Now with the grill, I kind of knew that when Memorial Day came, there would be a grill sale for Memorial Day. I figured that was a sure thing. Um, And I mentioned it to Tammy and she was looking on some sites and she came into the room where I was taking a nap the other day and she said this six... A uh, six flame grill that we've been looking at is on sale at Lowe's for $180. It's usually $300. I said, you know what? Let's buy it right now. So we went. I said, no dragging our feet. We were waiting for this sale. That's a great price. We can replace our grill. Not even $200. bucks. let us do it. So that still leaves us 1000 bucks for the TV without touching any of our own money. So, boom, we buy the grill, and it says we can pick it up the next day, Saturday, uh, at Lowe's. I'll get to that in a second. 
So then I decided, well, since I'm, we just got a deal for Memorial Day for a grill, I wonder if there's any deals for televisions. So I Googled Memorial Day television sales. And uh, CNET had an article up kind of showing all the different TV sales that were going on. And they said the number one sale uh, was a 65-inch TV. And now I've been looking to buy a 65-inch TV. And it was the, the, the TCL 4K Smart LED TV. It's a TV that I looked at in the $1,000 uh, price range. Uh, well, they were selling the TV uh, for $450. It was over $500 discounted. So I said, all right, I'm done looking for a TV. I'm buying uh, the TCL TV because if I considered this one at $1,000, uh, I am all in uh, at the uh, at the $450 uh, price, price level. Uh, so it wasn't my first choice of brand. I almost bought a Sony uh, TV not too long ago. For a thousand, uh, but uh, with this TV at this price, bam, four forty nine ninety nine, boom! I bought it. It comes this week, so that's how I ended up buying those two items minutes apart. But still, great job on the budget. I still have plenty of money left over. We'll just save something. Will come up, whatever. So, Lowe says they're going to email us and let us know when it's time to pick up. The grill, and we're hoping to do it Saturday, so we have people coming over for my brother Anthony's birthday on Sunday. So we're waiting all day Saturday. Paul is at my in-laws. We're waiting to pick up this grill. We want to build it. We want to have it ready for Sunday. Nothing's coming from Lowe's. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I go and check the status of the order, and it says it doesn't say it's available for pickup, but it says it's at the store. So I said to her, I said, let's go down there. We'll, we'll talk to them. If it's at the store, I don't see why we couldn't find a way to walk out with it. So we go to the customer service desk, and there's already someone there basically saying the same thing I am. I pre-ordered a grill online. It says it's in the store. How do I get it? And they're at the desk basically saying, look, your order's not ready to get picked up, but if you want to go try to find someone over by the grills and get them to give you a grill, you can come back over to me, and we can figure it out on the computer. So we go over there. Someone takes those people away. They're gone. I don't know what happened to them. And we get a young kid who's helping us who's clueless. No idea what's going on. And he's looking for the grill. He can't find the grill. I'm standing there, and I look over, and I see the grill we're looking for on a cart just sitting there in the aisle. Before I can find the guy who's looking for my grill to tell him, hey, there's one right here. These other people come, scope the grill, and tell some other, hey, can we just take that? And that guy's like, yeah, sure, and wheels it away. So I lose out on that one. Finally, the guy comes back, and he's like, look it. I can't find your grill. I don't know what to tell you. And I said, well, you just had a guy walk away with my grill, so you need to find it. He goes and finds another employee. That guy comes over and says... Let me take a look. He found one in a minute, and we're out of there with the grill. I will say this. If I owned a small business that was told I couldn't be open, 
and I was in Lowe's that day, I'd probably be sick to my stomach because there's nothing going on in Lowe's that's any different than when Lowe's was open before COVID. They're just open. They're selling stuff hand over fist. They're selling mulch. They're selling grills. They're selling wood. They're selling all kinds of home improvement shit that people are doing because they got extra time. And they ain't doing nothing in there uh, to prevent COVID for anyone. It's a joke. My heart really aches for the people who are told that they can't have four people in a hair salon to get a haircut. You know, or they can't work on a tattoo. Or they can't... Any of the businesses you can think of that are shut down. Uh, they must be really disgusted with the way things are going at Lowe's and Walmart and Target and all these big box places that get to stay open under the guise of being essential. Um, and they get to continue to profit and people's hopes and dreams uh, are literally evaporating in front of their eyes. It's got to be a really tough pill to swallow. And I felt really bad for those people when I was walking out of Lowe's with my grill. Uh, with that said, I hope everyone is still safe. And healthy. Uh, do your best to social distance, but get out. Uh, summer's here. Enjoy it. And we'll be back soon with another episode.